If you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. It's Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Mike on. It's been a little while since we've had someone from the congregation share, but I'm excited that Elizabeth has accepted the invitation to share with us. We did this a few times while I was on sabbatical, and this is a really good opportunity for us to hear from somebody within our body, from within the congregation, about how God uh, has been at work in their lives. So I'm grateful, Elizabeth, for saying yes, and I just want to pray for you uh, before you speak. God, thank you that Elizabeth has said yes to this. Thank you that she has offered herself up to you uh, today and in so many ways uh, to your service, Lord. I pray uh, that you would give her peace and clarity of thought as she speaks. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what she has to say. And I pray that the Spirit would work and minister through her and to us through what she has to share from her words and her life. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, big confession here. I never meant to be a teacher. Really. It seems kind of weird to me now that if you had asked me back in 2001 if I would be starting in on my 21st year of teaching, I would have told you, absolutely not. Yes, I graduated in December of 2000 with a degree in music education. I had my teaching license, the whole bit, but I was not going to be a teacher. I was, with all the idealism that you have in your early 20s, going to get my master's in conflict transformation, work for the UN, and create world peace. <laughs> I had just come back from a semester in, abroad in Northern Ireland, which I had loved. I had also just had a horrible student teaching experience, which included four inner city schools, three cooperating teachers, and only two days a week that I actually got to sit down and eat lunch and not just shove an apple in my face while driving between schools, all the while hoping for a train so that maybe I could eat my sandwich as well. So I was not going to be a teacher. I had it all planned. I was going to go back to Northern Ireland and spend a year doing voluntary service at Coramila, a center for conflict transformation. We had spent some weekends there while I was studying abroad, and I had loved it. I'd loved their focus on Christ being our guide to living in harmony with each other. I had loved it that it was a place where people could come together and work through their differences. And I really loved that it was by the beautiful and windy Irish Sea. So, after I graduated, I applied to start volunteering for the fall of 2001. I would wake up at 4 a.m. for phone interviews, five-hour time difference. And in the early spring of 2001, 
I was told that they had other applicants that were better suited to the position. I was crushed. Why was God telling me no to this thing that I so desperately wanted to do for him? I was doing this for him, right? So I jumped to plan B, which was apply to grad school at EMU. Might as well start working on the master's degree in conflict transformation. So I filed the, filled out the application, wrote my, letters of re, wrote my essays, got letters of recommendation, paid the application fee, which was no small task with my substitute teacher and part-time Pizza Hut salary, and mailed it off. I waited the month while working at Pizza Hut that summer, all the while sure I was moving to Virginia that fall. I got the letter back. Dear Elizabeth, thank you for your application, but most of our applicants aren't this young. We would like you to have more work experience first. We encourage you to take some classes during the Summer Peace Building Institute so we can get to know you better, and meanwhile, you can have more life experience. Well, hmm, wasn't exactly a no, but not a definitive yes. I wasn't sure exactly what to do with that, but it did still seem like I was heading in the right direction. So I applied for a whole bunch of substitute teaching jobs, worked almost every day doing that, worked the 4 to 10 p.m. shift at Pizza Hut every Saturday, and waited for the, application, waited for the applications to be opened up for the Summer Peace Building Institute. I applied and got accepted, and I was even asked to be a teacher's assistant while I was there. I loved every single minute of it. These were my people. I was studying what I wanted to do with my life, and it was a little bit of bliss in my world. Confirmation that I was doing what God wanted me to do with my life. I spent that summer working at Pizza Hut and waiting to go back the next year. I worked that summer as well as a counselor for the Ulster Project, which brought teens from Northern Ireland from both sides of the conflict together for a month of fun and devotions. I went to SPI the following year and was told with a wink that maybe the following spring of 2003 would be a good time for me to apply for their master's program. At the end of the summer of 2002, a music job opened up in Letonia schools. And even though I didn't really want to, I applied. It was for a K-2 general music position, which were some of my favorite grades, and I thought it wouldn't be too bad to work there for a year or two just to save up some money for grad school. I interviewed, and it went well, but not well enough. I was the second choice. But no biggie, I thought. I've still got my trusty jobs of substituting in Pizza Hut. I'm not feeling very fulfilled by them, but it's temporary. It's only for a year or two. In early January, I got a call from Letonia Schools saying that the music teacher that they had hired, her husband had to be transferred to Eastern PA for his job, and was I still in interested and available? Sure, I thought. It would be a relief to not have to wait for 6 a.m. phone call calls. I spent two and a half grading periods teaching, forgoing my yearly trip to SPI because it was the week of my spring concert. But I was only going to teach one more year there before applying for my master's program. I was not 
going to give up on this dream. Two days before my spring concert, the superintendent came to, to me to tell me that there were budget cuts. The music department couldn't support three teachers. They loved the job I was doing and would give me stellar references. But I was going to be let go at the end of the school year. I cried all the way home. I cried any time I wasn't teaching for the last three weeks of school. And then the thought hit me. Why am I crying over losing something that I never wanted? <laughs> Maybe I was in God's plan. Maybe I could create world peace, not by working for the UN, but by working to make young students in my classes more empathetic and more kind. And I got the peace of God that transcended my understanding. It was my first big no from God, but I saw the reason for it. There have been other big no's from God. I got another teaching job, this time at Lowellville. I love this job. I got to work with a former student teacher that I had had in high school that I really liked. He was fun and easy to work with, and he was the perfect person to help me grow into a better teacher. It was a very supportive community who loved their music program. I had a big room, big improvement over the storage closet I had in Latonia, and pretty much everything I had put in for classroom supplies, I got. Only one little hiccup. It was part-time. They kept, my schedule kept me 10 minutes away from full-time, meaning, even though I was there constantly, every football game, every field trip, every meeting, I was making about $12,000 a year. At the end of my third year, two other local jobs opened up that I, and as much as I hated the thought of leaving this community and school I loved, I thought it would be nice to make a living wage and have health insurance. So, one of the jobs was at Springfield. The lady who was leaving was recommending me for the job, and that was the one I wanted. It was K through five, general music and choir, no marching band commitment, and close to my home in North Iowa. But I had learned my lesson about underestimating God, and I applied to Western Reserve as well. Throughout the interview process, Western Reserve was way more persistent. <clears throat> Springfield seemed determined to keep putting off interviewing for their music position. First, they had to hire a math teacher, then a PE teacher, then not just one, but two rounds of interviews for a science teacher. Meanwhile, I interviewed at Western Reserve, had a second round of interviews. I really did not want that job. <laughs> I would have to travel between buildings. The buildings were old. I wouldn't have my own classrooms. Well, we all know what one I ended up getting. I got a call from Springfield superintendent as I was leaving to sign my contract at Western Reserve. And they said that they really wanted to interview me. 
And I told them, I'm sorry. I'm not giving up a for sure job for a maybe job. And I walked out to sign my contract. I hated my first year at Western Reserve. If you've ever left a job that you've really loved, you know that there's a grieving process that goes with that transition. Mine lasted 13 months. I had gone from a big room of my own to two small rooms in two different buildings five miles apart. One was the art slash music slash teacher's lounge. Another teacher once blew up the microwave in the middle of my fourth grade recorder lesson by heating her coffee up in a metal cup in the microwave. That was interesting. And the other one had black mold in one of the ceiling tiles. This was a high price to pay for the increase in salary. I wasn't sure why God had placed me here. Why couldn't I have stayed in my nice, supportive school? Why wouldn't Lowellville just have made me full-time? In early September, right before my second year, the eighth-grade English teacher stopped in my room. She had had a family get-together that weekend, and she had been talking to her cousin. He was saying that he was ready to settle down, get married, buy a house, but he didn't know where he was going to meet the right woman. Joyce said that my name slipped into her head and wouldn't leave. What did I think? Could she give him my phone number the next time she saw him? Why not, I thought. Worse that would happen was that I have a bad phone conversation and I would never actually have to meet him. A month later, she gave him my number and he called a few days later. One thing led to another and we are currently in our 11th year of marriage. I would never have met Joe if I hadn't worked at Western Reserve. There, again, was the reason for the no. And I had the peace of God that transcends all of my understanding. And 15 years later, I know that I'm in the place that God wants me to be, teaching and loving an amazing community of children. Those no's were the easy ones to understand. They felt very difficult in the moment. But within a year or two, the reasons for the no became clear. And I could nod and say, okay, see what you were doing there. Thanks. Now come the no's that I just don't understand. These ones do not have a happy ending as of yet. But I want to share what I've learned through them. When Joe and I had been married for about 10 months, we decided we would start trying to have a child. We both very much wanted to be parents. It was never in doubt. It was one of the first conversations that we had after our first date. How many kids do you want? Two or three? It was a deal-breaking conversation, and we both liked the answers that the other one gave. We knew it would likely be difficult. We were not particularly young when we got married. I was just shy of my 33rd birthday. I also have polycystic ovarian syndrome, a disease that causes, among other things, an increased risk of infertility, and if you do get pregnant, miscarriage. We started our journey with a trip to the Cleveland Clinic. 
where we were told that we wouldn't likely get any treatments for a year. Just see what happens. So we did. I remember that first pregnancy test like it was yesterday. I sat on the closed lid of our toilet in our tiny bathroom in our first house with my eyes closed for 10 minutes praying, please let this work. The alarm went off and I opened my eyes to only one line. But it was okay. It was the first one. I didn't know that I should have taken stock options in clear blue and first response and all the generic equivalents of them. This was the first of many, many, many tests. So after a year of no baby, we went back to the doctor in Cleveland. She gave me some blood tests, which were consistent with somebody with PCOS, and gave me a fertility drug and said, try this. We did. No luck. I called to let her know, and her response was, well, that's what I know. Maybe try something else. I don't think I need to explain how little help that was. I went back to my local doctor and I asked him for a referral. He referred us to a local clinic. I had an initial appointment for more blood work and scans. And at my follow-up, he mentioned that if I had just been on the volleyball or tennis team in high school, we probably wouldn't have been in this position. Yeah, he really said that. Also, not helpful at all. Needless to say, we did not go back. At this point, we were well into year two of trying. I went back to my doctor and said, okay, I've now had three rounds of blood work, two prescriptions, one of which caused an ER visit for high lactic acid, and one very painful procedure. Please give us someone who will actually help us. He transferred us to university hospitals, and we met with the person who actually tried and cared about our journey, Dr. Burke Rossi. Over the next two years, once a month, I would travel to Beechwood to have a scan, blood work, an adjustment to my prescription, have lunch and a trip to Trader Joe's, because if you're in Beechwood, you have to go, and then travel back. Every trip was a prayer. God. Is this the month? Is this the time it's going to work? Where is the child you promised us? Because see, on our wedding day, Joe was at our honeymoon cabin about to travel down the mountain to our cer ceremony. We got married in Tennessee, and you only made that trip up or down the mountain when you really had to. That. And while waiting to leave, Joe grabbed the Bible that was on the coffee table and was praying about our wedding and our marriage, and he opened it randomly to 2 Samuel. Who opens the Bible to 2 Samuel randomly? But he read the first thing he saw. The Lord declares to you that he himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. Chapter 7, verses 11 and 2. There it was. God's promise of our family, our own flesh and blood. So all our trips, all the tests, all the drugs, all the procedures and the tears and the pain, God promised us. So it will happen. 
After two years, Dr. Rossi called us both in and said that we were at a crossroads. We had done everything we could with prescriptions, and if we wished to continue, we would need to proceed to IUI or IVF. Well, how you spend four and a half years on fertility treatments and keep both your marriage and your finances in track is that you have a lot of conversations and very firm boundaries about what you both are and aren't willing to do. Joe and I had always said that we would try one or possibly two IUIs, but we drew the line at IVF. IUIs are not creating embryos, and at the cost at the time about $500 a time. IVF creates embryos and costs again at the time around $10,000. We decided that we would try an IUI the next month. We went up for the procedure and then went to lunch and tried not to think too much about what had just happened. We came home and I filled the prescription that I would need to take for the next two weeks, just in case I was pregnant. Here's the thing about that drug. It mimics early pregnancy symptoms. You had to take it twice a day and then lie flat on your back for 15 minutes with nothing to do but pray that you're pregnant and wonder that the nausea you're feeling is, a real, is the real deal or just a side effect. Two weeks later, I took what felt like my 300th pregnancy test and it was negative. Joe and I drove around that day crying and not sure what, why this was happening to us. We were good people. We loved the Lord with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul. We put him in every aspect of our lives. And besides, he had promised us. The unfairness of it all stung. The next week, we took our final trip to Beechwood, and Dr. Rossi sat us in her office and with tears in her eyes apologized for not being able to get us pregnant. We told her that it wasn't her fault, that perhaps God wanted us to have someone else's child, and that we were going to start the adoption process. And we almost had peace. Process is the right word for it. If your lives have been closely touched by adoption, you know it's hard, and it's messy, and it's expensive, and it will test your faith in ways you didn't even know it needed tested. We didn't even know where to begin. We knew a few couples who had adopted about 14 years prior, and we met with them, but they reminded us that things had probably changed since then. Trusty Google searches to the rescue. We found a couple of agencies here in Ohio, and after having been warned against one of them, and talking to a few others and comparing price tags, we settled on building blocks. It took us about eight months to come up with the initial fees to start the home study, mostly thanks to an anonymous donation that was left in my mailbox at school. It took us another six months to complete the paperwork that, and have visits from the social worker. We then had another month of filling out loan applications. But finally, we were ready to start submitting for a child. The very first one that we submitted for, we were chosen for an interview. It was March 15th of 2018, and we drove down to Southern Ohio to be interviewed 
by a woman who is placing her child for adoption. These interviews are every job and school interview rolled into one, except that you might not get the job simply because your hairstyle has changed since your profile picture, or if she didn't like the color of your shirt. Over a week, after a week, we got a phone call with a phrase that we grew to dread. She really enjoyed meeting you and doesn't have any negative feedback for you. She just felt a deeper connection to another couple. It was heartbreaking. Everything had seemed to be snapping into place. The baby was to be born in June, right after school let out. We were set. We were ready. We were still clinging to that promise that God has made. After many tears and years, we've learned that there's a rhythm to applying for birth mothers. It was our first disappointment, but it was not to be our last. And you can't keep that level of emotion for weeks or months on end. As I've described it to some people, when you apply for a birth mother and she doesn't pick you for an interview, it's kind of like going to your favorite restaurant, ordering your favorite dish, and then saying, we're out. You're mildly disappointed, but you pick something else and it doesn't ruin your evening. If you're picked for an interview and then don't get chosen, it's kind of like having to cancel a much-anticipated vacation. It stings and you're disappointed. And you may even cry about it, but you can get over it in a week or two. We had many rounds of this for a little over a year. Just after Father's Day of 2019, we got a phone call as we were cleaning up from dinner. It was Denise, the director of our agency. Amber has decided to match with you. She's a great birth mother. She's given up five other children for adoption successfully. She and her partner, Joe, have beautiful children. They're a great couple, just not terribly stable. None of her last three children have tested positive for drugs. She's due in late November. It was our dream come true. Every prayer that we had made was going to be answered. This started another round of paperwork and checks, and we took a newborn class. She was still a ways away from delivery, so we didn't buy anything yet except a baby boot book and a growth chart. Some people sent books and coffee mugs. In late August, I decided to order a crib I've had my eye on. We hadn't heard from Joe and Amber since early July, and we weren't sure if that was normal or not. So around the same time I ordered the crib, I sent a message to our agency and asked if they had any update on them. About four days later, the day before we got the crib that I had ordered, my phone rang. We just heard from Amber and Joe. They've decided to keep this baby. They feel like they're stable enough to parent now. We're so very sorry. Joe was at school. I had to send him the news, and then I got into bed feeling like my insides were being pulled out. I didn't know how to breathe. I didn't know how to scream. All I could do was cry and stare at the picture beside my bed. It's a beautiful picture that we had gotten at a discount store in Canton. We couldn't have paid more than $20 for it. It was a picture of a dock looking, going out into the water. And it has the verse from Philippians 4 on it. 
and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I had prayed that verse every night that summer. God, guard my little one. Be with him as he grows. And give me peace, since I can't protect him right now. But now, now I had had no peace. No peace that transcended my understanding. We had what is called a failed adoption. If you haven't lived it, it seems like a pretty bland term. What it means is that there's no actual word for what you're going through. People know what miscarriage and stillbirth means. They know that it's sad. But they don't understand this word. There's no good word for when you don't get a child that you weren't caring, but that you've loved as your own. You've planned for them in all the same ways. You got your home and your heart ready to welcome them, and then in an instant, they're gone. The only difference is, is that you know that they're still out there somewhere. You just aren't allowed to know where, or if they're okay, if they're fed or clothed. All you can do is pray, God, watch out for my child. Protect them. Let them know that I'm here pulling for them. Let them know your love and your peace. That was the first one, the first life changer. Not a mild thing like a favorite menu item out of stock. Not a disappointment like a missed vacation. This was soul-crushing. Faith-defeating. Again, everything had clicked so easily into place. We really felt like God was at work and that we had paid our dues and that we were going to get the child that we wanted to raise up in the fear of the Lord. Two more times we've been through this. Garcia happened in the last days of 2020. We had been through the pandemic, my dad had just died, and we were just getting over COVID when we got another call. She has open DCFS cases, so she's not going to be able to keep this one. This is a sure thing. She may be using drugs, nothing too hard. It's a boy due in early March. We had good communication with her throughout January. She had preeclampsia, so we knew he was going to be born early, probably mid-February. We got the nursery ready. We moved our furniture in our bedroom to accommodate the bassinet. We were about to book plane tickets when Darcia stopped answering our texts. The agency sent out APBs to all the local hospitals. And sure enough, our baby had been born on February 2nd. He was so sick, he had to be transferred to a children's hospital at NICU. But she was going to place him with a family member in the hope of getting him back someday. One more to add to my nightly prayers. God, watch over Robert. Keep him safe. Let him know that I love him and want what's best for him. I climbed into bed, stared at the picture on my wall, and wondered where was my peace that transcended my understanding. Christina happened this last March, March 15th to be exact, four years to the day of the first interview we ever had with a birth mother. A single mom of two, one with special needs, was pregnant with a girl with Down syndrome and a hole in her heart. 
She too was great about communicating. She told us that she could not parent two special needs kids. She had no family support. She was certain that she was making the right decision. She sent texts after every doctor's appointment, giving us updates on what the doctor had said. She, would let us, she let us know that she had to be rushed to the hospital in preterm labor. They got it stopped, but it could be any day. Then we got a text from the social worker. When she, could she call us that we would both be there? I knew. Joe knew. We were both at school and had to teach several more classes. I screamed all the way home. Primal, from the gut, screaming. I climbed back into bed for the third time and wondered where my peace was. And that night, I added another one to my list. God, protect Luna and keep her safe. Let her know that we love her and are pulling for her. Three no's that aren't neat and tidy. They aren't happy endings, and I don't have, always have peace about them. But I have learned some very important things because of them. Do not judge anyone. The person with the grumpy face or the bad attitude that you encounter, the person with the unwashed hair that looks like they're barely holding themselves together, the person with red-rimmed and puffy eyes, Likewise, the person with too bright of eyes and too wide of a smile that covers pain. They all deserve God's amazing grace. They are going through things, horrible things, and need our love, not our judgment. Everyone has the right to grieve. It might not be how you would grieve, but that's not for you to say. Your job is to show God's love and grace to them. So if the childless woman or the single person doesn't attend your baby or wedding shower, it's not an offense to you. They just can't. If someone is unusually down on a certain day, it may be a silent anniversary, the day their baby was due, the day their parent died. They are doing their best to just go about the day. So do not judge how they are grieving or that they're grieving at all. Give them grace. Number two, if someone is grieving, say as little as possible. Be there, but say little. The best things that were said to us were four or five word sentences. I'm sorry this stinks. I love you. I don't know what to say, but I'm here. We didn't need to be told of the time it worked out for our na your neighbor or to think of it from somebody else's point of view. And above all, we did not need advice. Unasked for advice was the worst thing when we were grieving. I was told to just take a break. Maybe try a vacation. Start the adoption process. That'll get you pregnant. Try a different agency or just accept the fact that God didn't want you to be a mother. I was told that maybe there would have been something wrong with the baby. That perhaps God was saving us from a lifetime of heartache. None of that helped. What helped were the people who showed up with sushi and Mexican and dropped it at our door. The people that dealt with the crib delivery that happened the day after we found out. The card that came in the mail that said that they were so sorry for our heartache. 
They didn't say much. They didn't compare our lives to theirs. They didn't try to make sense of it or tell us that there was a reason for everything. They were just there. It may be uncomfortable to do because you want to help. You want to soothe. You want to take away the pain. But just being there, sharing in the sadness, sitting with them in the morning, that is helping. And the most important thing that I learned, God is our rock. Our very present help in times of trouble. And he's strong enough to withstand our anger. You aren't a bad Christian if you yell at God. Scream at him. Question him. He can take it. Our God is so soft-hearted, and he loves us so very much. He understands that we're in pain. He's not going to cast you out. He's going to say, I still love you. My plans are perfect. I know you don't get it. I know that it hurts. And I know that you may not understand it, this side of glory. But come. Come to me. When people have seen me after a big no, we've often been asked how I do it. My answer is, I have a big faith and a much bigger God. I don't like or even understand his answer right now, but I do have faith that he loves me and he has not left me yet. I'm still coming to peace with the nose. I don't understand yet why we have three children that we won't see grow up. I don't understand yet why I hold three names and dates in my heart. And I don't understand why our promise has yet to be fulfilled. But I've decided a long time ago to follow Jesus. And I know that I will never turn my back on him. And that is what gives me the peace that passes all of my understanding.